0: Uh, We're going to be in Matthew 24 and looking at the return of Christ, when and what. This is part three, the signs of Christ's coming, focusing in on the birth pains that Jesus brought up uh, last week. We looked at those. Uh, This is Jesus' uh, uh, teaching on uh, the time before his coming. It's called the Olivet Discourse because he gave this sermon on the Mount of Olives And I just want to do a little bit of a recap. His disciples had been with him and his disciples asked him two questions and they're found in verse three. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they had heard him denounce the religious leaders prior to this. They heard him talk about the desolation of Jerusalem. Uh, He had prophesied about the destruction of the temple, even saying, Not one stone shall be left upon another. And so they believed that any day now, Jesus was going to establish his earthly uh, kingdom, destroy those godless nations, purify and rebuild the temple, gather uh, all the people that have been scattered throughout the land back into Israel, and inaugurate a new era of peace. And they believe that this would happen really, really soon. And so they want to know from their Messiah, what will the sign be that, that when he will come and in in his fullness as Messiah, fully reigning as Messiah. Now I do want you to remember, they don't think that he's going anywhere. Uh, They have no view of the church age gap. That's this gap right here. They're right here. And Jesus is telling them about this, what's happening prior to his second coming. They have no idea about this, this church age. They don't really think he's going anywhere. What they're saying is, when are you going to make it all happen? And so they understood the coming of the Messiah, just as was pictured in the Old Testament by the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, Zechariah, even some of the minor prophets They never made a distinction between His first coming and His second. We understand that now because we live in this time. It's undeniable uh, now. We live in that gap. Uh, And that is why the New Testament, Paul calls it the mystery. It's a mystery that was hidden in time past but revealed in the New Testament. So here we are. We stand in this time period. Jesus has come and He has gone. And so we wait for the future coming of the Lord. And whether you believe that is the rapture or just the second coming, either way, we still wait for the Lord, don't we? Right? We're waiting for Him to come. And so the disciples simply want to know when He will fully establish Himself as King, which in their minds happens at the end of the age. And so Jesus gives them the longest answer to any question asked of Him in the entire New Testament. Think about how many questions Jesus was asked, right? All the time. But this is the longest answer he gives to any question that you will find. And as we saw last week, it's clear by by Jesus' answer that his coming is in the future. The signs that he talks about tell of a future time. They could not have been fulfilled between between the the time of the disciples in AD 70. They have not been fulfilled during the church age unless you spiritualize uh, the words of Jesus and ignore the literal meaning. No, they're, they're yet to be fulfilled. And so the signs that we're talking about here, Jesus calls them the beginning of sorrows. If you remember that uh, in verse uh, eight, that word sorrows, it's it's a bad translation there because the word literally means birth pains. And, and that's one of the indicators that the signs are yet future because when a woman gets uh, uh, pregnant, she doesn't instantly have the labor pains, the birth pains right? She doesn't have those in the middle of pregnancy. She has them at the end of pregnancy. That's when the birth pains come. That's when the labor pains start because it, it, it is an indication to the woman to get ready, get prepared. You're about to have a baby, right? And that's the idea there. And so Jesus says that one of the, the signs are, are these birth pains. And there are six birth pains. And last week we looked at uh, the first one. The first birth pain was deception, De- deception, and that's found in verses four to five. And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Uh, yes, there were false Christs then, and there are even now, and there will still be yet in the future, but the deception that takes place during during this, this period of time in the future is an unparalleled worldwide deception. And we took all all week last week to look at this. And that is due to the the restraint that has been removed upon evil, I believe, because I believe the church has been raptured and the church with its sanctifying influence is gone. The Holy Spirit has removed his restraint on evil. And so false Christs are seeking to take advantage of the vulnerable and they will multiply during that time. They will be everywhere. And that time is going to culminate with who? We looked at that. The ultimate false Messiah, the ultimate false Christ, the Antichrist. And we read about him last week. We looked at Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 11. We looked at 2 Thessalonians 2, Revelation 13. And all those places, we found that Jesus' statement that they will deceive many, or that many will be deceived during that time, was consistent with the rest of scripture, with those passages which speak of a time yet future. So today, we're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to begin looking at the second birth pain, and we'll get through all six of them today. We're looking at verses uh, 6 through 14. Let's read it now. Matthew 24, beginning of verse 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word today, Lord, the words of Jesus himself speaking today. And Lord, we just pray that our minds would be attentive and focused on, on your words here, Lord, that we would uh, see your words um, and, and take them as we're meant to take them, as Jesus meant his disciples uh, to take them, as he's answering their questions about uh, the, the end of the age, the signs of his coming, Lord. Help us to see these signs and, and understand by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we might have a better understanding, a better grasp of future end-time events, Lord, and that we might know how we might live in this present evil age. And so, God, we just thank you for our time. We pray you bless it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, we're going to look at birth pain number two, uh, starting here with uh, disputes. The second birth pain is disputes. It's found in verse 6 and the first part of verse 7. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The phrase here, you will hear, has a, a future connotation to it. It means continual hearing. You will continually hear and be hearing of wars. It's going to be a time of many wars, war upon war. And even when it seems like there are no wars taking place, you're going to hear rumors that wars are taking place. And the reason you'll hear rumors of wars is because they're going to be so commonplace in that day. It is true. We have had wars haven't we? I mean, there's been, there have been many uh, many wars, and, and many nations have known times of war, and many nations have known times of peace, and that's not this time. It's not marked by peace, but by continual worldwide warfare. Notice he says that it'll be nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, I don't know that he's really trying to make a distinction between nation and kingdom, but I think he's just trying to cover all the basis that no group of people is exempt from this time. People groups, tribes, nations, territories, countries, kingdoms, right? No group of people exempt. They will all be embroiled in war. And when we go to the other passages of Scripture, we're going to find that this is the case In those days, turn to Daniel chapter 11. Now I'm going to warn you today. We're going to spend a little bit of time at Daniel, but we're going to spend a whole lot of time in Revelation, and it's going to be way easier for us to turn there. Otherwise, it would have 400 slides, and we're going to be reading a lot of passages in there. So just be ready to flip back and forth um, between our passage today and particularly uh, Revelation. But today, right now, we're going to go to Daniel chapter 11, verse 40. This describes the end. Time. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. Now I know I've just picked a verse completely out of context, and you're looking at this going, What is going on? Who who is the he and the him in this passage, right? Because you have the king of the south attacking him. You have the king of the north attacking him. And the he mentioned after that. Who is that in reference to? Well, that is in reference to the Antichrist. And that is found back in verse 36. So just back up a bit. And we looked at this verse last week. Verse 36, then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. Shall speak blasphemies against the God of Gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. We looked at this verse as speaking of the Antichrist, and there are others, but we're looking at it in context of verse 40 here, as the Antichrist, because he is the one that sets himself up right above every God and blasphemes against God. And we talked about that. That's going to happen at the midpoint of the tribulation. We'll talk more about it next week, the abomination of desolation. But at that midpoint, he's going to demand uh, worship. He's going to magnify himself above all the gods, and he's going to blaspheme God. That whole passage is talking about that, and he places all his trust in power, in in exerting power, in fortresses, and, and all of that. That's what it all describes the Antichrist. So when you get to verse 40, we find a time of war. We find out that the king of the south and the king of the north are coming up against the Antichrist. He is the he, (laughs) the him, in that uh, verse. And one thing that Daniel makes clear, which is confirmed in Revelation, is that the Antichrist is a ruler and he is ruling over an empire. It is a revived Roman empire. It is some sort of Western coalition, Western confederacy of some kind. And he establishes his power there in in Europe. And and even though he establishes his power in in an area, his threat is to the entire world. He's a worldwide threat. And it comes from Daniel chapter 7. We'll look at it in a minute. But Daniel has this amazing vision of these beasts. You remember the beasts? And he sees one that first comes out. It's a a lion. And then he sees another one come out. It's a bear bear. And he sees another one come out. It's a, it's a leopard. And, and he sees those and he's able to describe them. Oh, lion, bear, leopard. Um, and they represent these kingdoms. The lion represents the kingdom of Babylon. There would be these successive kingdoms. The bear, Medo-Persia. The leopard, Greece. And then who follows Greece? The Roman Empire does. And he describes this fourth beast and he has no description for it in terms of animals that exist. I mean he couldn't say, you know, oh, that looks like an ostrich. He he couldn't describe it other than giving us all these details. He says it's terrible, exceedingly strong, dreadful, has strong iron jaws, and it devours everything. It breaks everything in pieces and it tramples it um, and the residue is destroyed. It has ten horns, and three of them are plucked out by the roots, and, and one horn replaces it, has eyes on it. You know, so this is horrific, nightmarish animal that he in, envisions. And In one sense, uh, it's Rome, because Rome comes in as that fourth empire. But in another sense, it's the future empire. How do we know that? Because of Daniel chapter 7. Go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 23. The great thing about Daniel's uh, prophecy is that the prophecy interpretation is given to us. We don't have to try to figure it out. So he has the vision, and then the angel tells him what it means. And Daniel doesn't want to know about the lion, bear, and leopard. He knows they represent Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. He wants to know about this fourth one. He's like, I want to know what that thing is. What is that fourth dreadful, terrifying beast? And so the angel answers him in Daniel chapter seven, verse 23. Then he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. The 10 horns are 10 kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Now, we know this speaks of the Antichrist, who is going to speak pompous words against the Most High. He's going to persecute the saints, and he's only going to do that for three and a half years, a time, times, and half a time. And we saw that last week as well. Three and a half years, or 42 months, was described as that period of reign that he would be allowed to persecute the saints and speak pompous words, basically demand worship from everyone else. And so, this Antichrist is ruling this kingdom. He has great power, great authority, unlike any other which has come before him. That's what Daniel says. There's no other kingdom like it. None. In fact, in Revelation 13, you don't have to turn there, but we looked at it last week. He describes that fourth beast. This is John's vision now. Okay, so John wrote Revelation. John describes the fourth beast, uh, but he adds about the fourth beast that it looked like a leopard, that it had feet. Like a bear that had a mouth like a lion and it had the ten horns, isn't that interesting? Daniel says, Well, it's a completely different creature, it has horns and it just looks completely scary. But John says, Well, it looked like a leopard, it had the feet like a bear, it had a mouth like a lion. Now, in Daniel, Daniel is looking forward in history, right? So he says, Lion is the first kingdom because that's Babylon, that's the kingdom that would have taken Daniel into captivity. Babylon, then you have the bear, Medo-Persia. Then you have the leopard, Greece. John is looking backwards in history. And so he mentions them in reverse order. He says leopard, Greece. He says bear, Medo-Persia. He says lion, Babylon. Interesting, isn't it? So, and it has the 10 horns. And so he's saying the same thing, that, that, that this is a kingdom sort of made up from the other uh, kingdoms. And he's ruling this 10-nation confederacy. And while he's ruling, going back to to Daniel chapter 11, these two kingdoms come up against him, the king of the north and the king of the south. Well, the king of the south, it could end up being some sort of uh, African coalition of some kind that comes in from the the south, the king of the north, very possibly Russia and uh, Middle East allies that he has, and they're coming in to battle him. Now, the Antichrist defeats them initially. That's what it says, that he'll overwhelm them uh, and pass through, and he's going to go where? He'll enter, verse 41, into the glorious land. That is the land of uh, Israel. And then it kind of describes there the warfare that's going to take place there. Many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also Libyans of the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels, but news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many, and he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain." yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. This is an amazing uh, picture here. But the Antichrist is going to sweep into the Holy Land for a final battle. The the King of the North is still coming at him. And now news from the East, probably China with its vast army coming into, and they're all moving into where? The glorious land. That is the picture there. And so what Daniel is picturing is a final time, A future time of great worldwide conflict, disputes between nations, a time of worldwide warfare, and it culminates with this battle near the holy mountain. In fact, turn to Zechariah. If you just make a right-hand turn, it's the second to last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah gives us this picture as well because the battle moves in the vicinity of Jerusalem because the Antichrist has placed his tent between the holy mountain and the sea. Look at Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Do you see that? That's exactly what Daniel's talking about. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. That's Zechariah's vision of that time, a a giant battle that culminates there, but the Lord will end up fighting the battle in the end. Make another little left-hand turn to the book right before this. It's the book of, well, I pronounce it Haggai, but I think you say Haggai here, but it's chapter 2, verse 22. Chapter 2, verse 22. It says, I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them and horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of shilthiel says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I've chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. So Zerubbabel, he's a descendant of David, in in Haggai's mind is is pictured as the Messiah who will will go out, send out his army, and destroy the Gentile nations. When's that going to happen? There in that future time when the world is at war and the Antichrist is leading that war. Now, let me take you to Revelation chapter 6. Now, most of the times we go to Revelation, we're going to start in chapter 6. So, just maybe put a bookmark there or something. Revelation chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 2. These first seals that are taken off this scroll, there's a scroll that is the title deed to the earth. It's sealed with these seven wax seals and each uh, seal is being peeled away. The first one is peeled away. And these are where the four horsemen come out. Maybe you've heard of them as the uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Here's where they come out. In verse two, you have the first one. And I looked and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. This is not Jesus. Jesus comes on the white horse in chapter 19 at the end. This is at the beginning. This is judgment. Who is the rider on the white horse who is crowned? That's the antichrist. How do we know? Everything we've seen thus far in Daniel, in the other other books that prophesy about this future ruler because he's going to conquer first of all with peace, with subterfuge, subtlety, deception because he, he's given a bow but no arrows. He doesn't conquer with arrows. He's just given a bow. That is this time of deception where people are lured into a false sense of security, a false sense of peace, and it quickly gives way to a time of war. In fact, look at verse uh, four of Revelation chapter uh, chapter six. You have another horse. This is the second seal that's opened to the second horse. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that the people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. So the time of peace that is, is, is brought in by that time of deception that Jesus talked about last week is now transitions into a time of war because the, the, um, the Antichrist reveals himself for, for who he really, really is. And so now he is, he is open war upon the world. And you're going to see this all through Revelation. I'm going to walk you through it. In fact, turn to chapter 9. Verse 13. Chapter 9, verse 13. We're in the trumpet judgments at this point, and there's the sixth trumpet being blown in verse 13. It says, The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, and day, and month, and year were released to kill. A third of mankind. Now, the number of the army of the horsemen was two hundred million. I heard the number of them. No doubt you've heard about this two hundred million man army. It was a number of years ago. I think in the 80s that the uh, uh, China announced that they had a two hundred million man army. Um, but here at this point, you have war, and you have these four angels who are bound. Now, angels aren't bound, so these are demon beings, okay? They're bound for this particular purpose, that they would go out, right, and, and and stir up this army to come into battle. This is all being done by demonic forces, and so these demonic forces bring in this 200 million man army for war, and there's great bloodshed that takes place in the battle that will ensue. In fact, look at verse uh, 18 here. It says that, after they're described, the army is described, it says, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. That's coming out of the, uh, the, 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 the um, 200 million man army as they're described there. A third of mankind, that's great destruction. That's great war. These are the wars and rumors of wars that Jesus is talking about. Skip ahead to Revelation 13. Look at verse seven. This is the beast, uh, the Antichrist. We looked at this last week, and I we probably read this verse even. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So there he was given authority that he might um, uh, go against the uh, the saints and persecute them. In verse, in verse 5 is where the 42 months was mentioned right here. He's able to do that for 42 months. We just read that in Daniel as well, right, that he would persecute those saints, make war against the saints for a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. So this this is all the same guy. And here he is warring with the saints there in Revelation 13, seven. And this war culminates in chapter 16. Look at verse 13, chapter 16, verse 13. Now this is kind of creepy. This is the sixth bowl. So now we're into the bowl judgments. You have the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and now the bowl the bowl is poured out, and in verse 13 it says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Chapter 12 tells us the dragon is the devil, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So again, demons influencing the kings of the earth. Why? To gather them to battle for that great day of God Almighty. What is that battle? What is that great day of God Almighty? Well, the answer is given in verse 16. It's called Armageddon, right? That's the battle of Armageddon um, spoken of there. We're not talking about the movie with Bruce Willis. It has nothing to do with a giant comet coming down to earth. It has everything to do with demons influencing the nations of the world to come and converge into the Holy Land for one final uh, climatic battle. And it culminates there. Now go back to Matthew 24. What Jesus says about all these wars and troubles. Verse 6 again, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. (laughs) See that you're not troubled. The word really means to, to raise an alarm. Don't be alarmed. Don't don't go crying out loud. Why? There's no need to. He says, "Why?" Because all these things must come to pass. These things have to happen. We don't need to raise the alarm. These th- these things are meant to take place. They all must come to pass, but the end is still not yet. That still isn't the end. Well, what is the end? Well, we're going to find out in a bit here. So in the midst of that battle as we described it Christ is going to come, he's going to destroy All of them, that's Revelation 19. But what you can see here is that the Old Testament prophets and John writing Revelation are consistent with what Jesus is teaching here. It's a time of wars, rumors of wars, nations against nations, and kingdoms against kingdoms. There's a third birth pain. The third birth pain are disasters. Disasters. And we find that in the second half of verse 7 and in verse 8. Look at verse 7. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, in your Bibles, the the best manuscripts of Matthew don't include that word pestilences. So maybe you have a little note there or something in the margin that tells you, in you omits pestilences. All that is saying is that the, the oldest, most reliable manuscripts don't have the word pestilences. But it's in there. He just says famines and earthquakes. Well, that's enough, I think. But anyway, he says those two things take place. But Luke writes in Luke 21 and Mark writes in Mark 13 about this discourse given by Jesus. And when you look at Luke's verse in Luke 21, 11, he adds to this. He says this, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, he uses the word, and there will be fearful sights, and great signs from heaven. So there you have a, a longer list of things actually, but also he is the one that uses pestilences, so it does make sense that the word pestilences sort of made its way into to Matthew's gospel because Luke used that word as well. What about this word pestilences? What is that? The word pestilence is loimas. And it is a plague. That's what pestilence is. It's a plague. You're talking about Uh, worldwide diseases um, that are affecting all of mankind. Um, Yeah, we have just been in the midst of COVID-19 pandemic. I will tell you that that is not the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here because we're going to go to Revelation and really see a plague. All right? Plagues that will kill many, many, many millions of people. This is a type of thing that he is describing. In fact, when you take the composite from Luke and what he wrote and Matthew, this is what you you can look forward to in the future. Famines, earthquakes, pestilences, fearful sights, and great signs from heaven. All those things are described as having, taking place in various places. Various places. Now, the word various is interesting because it's the word kata. It's a common word. But here it um, it it, uh, it's, it it talks about it happening simultaneously, not time to time, here and there, various places. It has an indication of succession of things following one after another. Uh, um, I mean, used elsewhere in scripture. Luke uses it elsewhere in scripture as he talks about Jesus going throughout every city. That's kata throughout every city in succession, going from city to city. That's the idea here. So, various places is not meant to mean, oh, here and there from time to time, kind of like we see now. Yeah, there might be, you know, this happening in this country or this happening in this country. This is, this is happening all at the same time. Horrible global disasters. And with the restraint lifted, uh, the earth is literally going to be disintegrating at this point. And this is what we see happening in Revelation again. So, go back to Revelation chapter 6. We're going to point out all these things. Pestilences, earthquakes, famines, um, fearful sights, uh, great signs in the heavens. We're going to see all these things here. And go back to chapter 6. We see these white, the the, the horsemen at the beginning again. This is the third horseman in verse 5. Revelation chapter 6, verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. And so I looked, and behold, a black horse. So we had the white horse, we had the red horse, and now we have the black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. This is uh, represented, this writer is represented as, as famine, which would be what we would expect to see after a worldwide war, right? Devastation all over, we would see times of famine. When we talk about the denarius here, Um, denarius was a day's wage. And so food is going to be so scarce. It will take a whole day's wage just to get a quart of wheat. And if you wanted more food, you could spend a denarius to get three quarts of barley, but it wasn't as nutritious as the wheat, but there are your options, right? But the oil and the wine ain't going to happen. Those are hot, high value commodities. Those you will not be able to get hold of. And so these are dire, desperate times of famine. And after that, right away, we have the next horse in verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come and see. And so I looked to behold a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Now, look at that list. You, this, this, this horse is able to kill with sword. That's the second seal, right? The war. Kill with hunger. That's the third seal, the famine. And to kill with death and the beasts of the earth. That's what describes this com- comes with the last horse, the fourth horse, right? Now, death and beasts gives us the impression that what follows famine is disease, pestilence worldwide. I mean, it could be when it talks about the beasts of the earth that he's talking about things like Rats. Things, types of creatures that thrive in these types of times. I mean, you think about in the 14th century, the bubonic plague, that killed a a third of Europe's population, a third. So this is the type of time we're seeing with famine and with war and, and death being spread. Disease is being spread. Pestilence is being spread. And so all of these disasters combined with this final horse kill a fourth of the world's population. You guys, that is 1.5 billion people by today's standards. 1.5 billion. This is the type of thing that Jesus is describing. When you see disasters on that scale, then you know the time is coming. Are we seeing disasters on that scale? We're not. But there will be a time when that will be taking place. Now, let's walk through Revelation again, see if we can see any of these signs that Jesus and Luke mentions. The famines, the earthquakes, the... Pestilences, fearful sights, even, or great signs from heaven. If you're still in chapter 6, look at verse 12. This is the sixth seal that is opened up, and it says, I looked when you opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. Well, there you, you got a couple in one shot, don't you? You have the earthquake, you got fearful sights, you've got great signs in the heavens all happening in one go. And this is prophesied by the prophet Joel. In fact, uh, Peter quotes him in Acts chapter 2. But but Joel says this in chapter 2, verse 30 to 31. Look at this verse. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Joel is primarily about the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. When you read that book, you get that whole sense. It's about the judgment before the coming of uh, Christ. And so he says, what are you going to see? Wonders in the heavens, blood and fire, pillars of smoke, sun's going to be turned to dark, the moon into blood. These are the type of things that you would expect to see in the end times. And certainly we start to get a glimpse there. You have the seventh seal opened and it encompasses all of God's final wrath uh, before and up to the return of Christ. So uh, when the seventh seal is opened, that reveals the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, all encompassed in that seventh and seal. And so the next angels are given trumpets to blow, uh, to, to symbolize judgment upon the earth, earth, and they begin to cause some real devastation. You see it in chapter eight. Look at chapter eight, verse seven. This is the first trumpet that is blown. The first angel sounded and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up that sounds like Joel right blood and fires and pillars of smoke you have verse 8 then the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood so these are fearful sights from the heavens look at look at verse uh, 10 the third angel sounded like a great a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water, In the name of the stars, Wormwood, a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. So you have the sort of famine times mingled with the times of fearful sights and great signs from heaven, all converging at once. Look at the fourth angel, verse 12, the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine and likewise, the night. These are the type of things that Jesus is describing. In chapter 9, you have a a bottomless pit that's opened, and demons emerge, and they begin to torment those who have not been sealed. Remember, in chapter 7, the 144,000 Jews have been sealed, but these creatures will, these demons will torment those who haven't been sealed, and you see this in chapter 9, verse 5. They were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death (laughs) and they will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. And it describes these things. Look, at these are fearful sights. The shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. These are, these are terribly frightening uh, things, and we, we find out that the king that is over them, the king that is over these demonic spirits, uh, uh, spirits is called Abaddon or Apollyon, which means destroyer just there to destroy, cause havoc. And we're not done with the earthquakes either. You come to um, chapter 11, verse 13, there's a great earthquake that sort of centered in Jerusalem. Eleven thirteen. in the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a 10th of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. You get to chapter 14, it gives us a glimpse of the end and the Battle of Armageddon. It's a sort of a flash-forward chapter. Actually, we'll look at it a little bit later. But go all the way to chapter 16, verse 2. Now we're in the bowl judgments. It's really coming hard and really coming fast here. I think the early judgments, the seals, are maybe perhaps over a period of of longer periods, maybe like those first couple years. And then those trumpet judgments, maybe over months or, or weeks, and then these these ones maybe over weeks and days, maybe even hours. I mean, these are the labor pains, right? They're just coming quicker and quicker and quicker. And here in verse two, the first went. This is the bowl. The first went and poured his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. There's a plague for you, right? Everyone's running around with these sores upon themselves. Verse three. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood. As of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Verse 4 Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Fearful sights, right? These are, these are the type of things we're, we're speaking of. Go down to verse 8. Here's a fourth bowl that's poured out. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat. And they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. And then the fifth angel poured out his bull on the throne of the beast, on the Antichrist and his kingdom, and became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. So then we come again to the battle of Armageddon, which results from that sixth bull uh, release of the demons who go out and gather all the nations for the battle. And you look at the result uh, of the, the, the seventh bull, Go back to Revelation chapter uh, 6. I just want to show you this here. Oh, actually, no, sorry. It's 16. Sorry, it's in 16. 18 to 20. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now, the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Now, that's judgment on Babylon, which is the government of the Antichrist. There's a great uh, a great earthquake described there um, that divides the city into different parts. And it speaks about uh, the fierceness of uh, the cup of the wine, of the fierceness, fierceness of his wrath being upon Babylon. So, chapters 17 and 18 sort of explain in greater detail that wrath. And then you get to chapter 18 and look at verse eight. Therefore, speaking of Babylon, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Boy, that, that, that there's a lot there in Revelation, isn't there? You see the earthquakes, the famines, the pestilences, fearful sights, great signs in the the heavens. And what Jesus says, going back to Matthew 24, is so shocking. All these are what? The beginning of sorrows, the beginning of birth pains, he says. There's there's even more to come. Goodness. Well, what comes next? Well, the the, the fourth birth pain is deliverance. Deliverance, and not the type of deliverance you're probably thinking of. It's found in verse 9. Then, They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, thus far, Jesus has addressed things that would come upon the world, hasn't he? But now he addresses things that will come upon believers. Now, that probably brings up a question to you. How can there be believers if the church has been raptured? Well, a couple of things. One, chapter 11 talks about the, uh, in Revelation chapter 11, talks about the two witnesses, two witnesses who will preach uh, for 1,260 days, which is three and a half, three and a half years, okay? 1,260 days. And they're going to be supernaturally protected by God. They're also going to be a source of some of the plagues. In fact, look at Revelation 11, 6. You don't have to look it up. I have the verse for you. These have power to shut heaven, slide 10. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. They have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So that's the power of the two witnesses. They are witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they are bringing plagues upon the earth as well. But what happens is that the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, you have the Antichrist, they overcome them, they kill them, and their bodies are going to lie in the streets for three and a half days, And the world is going to be rejoicing and all the world will see it because, well, we have social media, don't we? Everyone will see it. And the miracle is that they are all going to rise from the dead and millions and millions and millions of people will witness this miraculous rising from the dead and and they will come to belief in Christ because of of that. Now, that miracle is going to be followed by the earthquake uh, in Jerusalem that we just read about. And it will cause many to give glory to the God of heaven. Remember that? Give glory to the God of heaven. So you have a miraculous resurrection and then a massive earthquake. And finally, some people are going to start turning and giving glory to the God of heaven. And so you have some people turning to Christ, becoming believers during the tribulation. In addition to that, you have the presence of the 144,000 Jews who will be a, a witnessing nation in that time. In any case, there will be believers and they will be delivered up. Now, to deliver up is a technical term for arrest. The phrase, they will deliver, that phrase, is one word in the Greek, paradidomi, paradidomi. And it means to give into the hands of another, to deliver treacherously. That's the deliverance we're talking about. It's used in that same sense when, when Matthew uh, records that Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, that phrase put in prison is peridotomy, right? He's, he is delivered over to uh, another. And so many believers will be arrested. They'll be killed. And uh, when you read Mark's account there, Mark talks about the fact that, uh, that they'll deliver you up to councils, but also you'll be beaten in synagogues. You'll be brought before rulers, but also kings. It's almost as if he is including purposely... Gentile and Jewish authorities, the councils, maybe the Gentile authorities, the synagogues, the Jewish authorities, the kings, the Gentiles, the rulers, the synagogues. Well, you we say, well, what would it, what, what would be the deal here with Jews beating up, you know, people who are, well, because the Jews will be part of that. There will be 144,000 sealed, saved Jews, but there will still be Jews who will be betraying one another, who will be part of the persecution that is taking Place, as will the Gentiles. So probably both Gentile authority and Jewish authority are prophesied here. But but this was prophesied about in Ezekiel chapter twenty, verse thirty-eight, in terms of Jews rebelling. I will urge the rebels from among you, and those who transgress against me, I will bring them out of the country where they dwell. But they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. These are the rebels from among them, right? Not all of Israel will be saved those who rebel against the true Messiah, who do not give glory to God, they're going to be part of the persecution. And this kind of persecution of believers is described in Revelation as well. Go back to Revelation, you guessed it, chapter six. Revelation chapter six, look at verse nine. Revelation chapter six, verse nine. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then a white robe was given to them, each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. Interesting, isn't it? They are to wait until they are avenged, until there's a certain number that is reached. There's there's more to die that are going to come and join them. Interesting, right? So you have this kind of persecution happening, so much so that we have an altar that appears and souls are envisioned under them. Later in chapter 7, John sees a a giant multitude standing before the throne of God. It's in chapter 7, verse 9. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and for the lamb clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So the question is, well, who, who are these people? That question is asked down in verse 14 and then answered by the person who asked it. And I said to him, "Sir, you know." And so he said to me, "These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb." So there's there's more martyrs who are coming out of the great tribulation. There's a great multitude of them. You also have the two witnesses. Remember, they're they're martyred on on national television. They're killed and left out to rot. In Revelation chapter twelve, you have a interesting uh, picture of a woman and a child and a dragon. But the woman represents Israel giving birth to the child, the Messiah, and the dragon wants nothing more than to kill that Messiah, right? And to persecute the woman because he's always after uh, Israel, trying to persecute Israel. In verse 13, it says that when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Why why has the nation of Israel always been sort of a focused uh, uh, area of persecution? Why that particular people, a group? Ultimately, uh, Satan, ultimately the dragon, he has purposed himself to persecute the woman, persecute Israel. You have that taking place there in verse seven of chapter thirteen. We looked at this already. This is the beast. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So they're overcoming the saints. That means he's he's killing them. And uh, further along in chapter seventeen, verse six, this. You you have a, a amazing picture uh, here. Look at this verse six. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marvelled with great amazement. Now this this woman is not uh, the woman mentioned earlier, Israel. Uh, this woman is, is also called the harlot, and she represents the 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 giant sort of false religious system that has been established at this point, and Antichrist ruling over that system now, and, and, and they've martyred so many believers, they're really drunk with the blood uh, there. So, it's unparalleled persecution that's going to take place right before re- return of Christ. Now, that is pretty severe as we read those things, and it's tragic, but it's not as tragic as the fifth birth sign. The fifth birth sign is defection. Defection. Look at verse 10, and then many will be offended will betray one another and will hate one another. That kind of intense persecution of, of believers is going to, to weed out the pretenders. It's going to uh, sort of reveal those who are really part of, the, part, part of Christ. Those who identify with Christ maybe outwardly, but uh, in, were never really committed to him inwardly, right? And these people will begin to betray one another. Now, how do we know that that's what Jesus is talking about? Believers betraying believers, or at least people who pretended to be believers. It's because of the word that he uses here. And then many will be offended. That word offended is scandalizo. Scandalizo. It means to fall away. It's not just offended. It's not just because someone said something, oh, I'm I'm offended at you. And so the word actually means fall away. Many will, will fall away. And because they fall away, they will betray one another. Now, how can I explain what this means? Both Matthew and Mark, they, they use that same word in that very familiar parable, the parable of the soils. Remember that? It's not the parable of the sower, right? We know the sower and, it's the, and, and then the seed is the gospel, but it's really about the hearts of men, the different soils. And the, and the, the seeds are falling upon the wayside, that represents one soil, stony places, that's another soil the thorn, uh, thorns, that's another, and then the, the good ground, right? Those four places. Well, the seeds that fall upon stony places, look at what it says here in, in Matthew 13, verses 20 to 21. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation, or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now notice that word stumbles. That is the word scandalizo. That's the word that Jesus uses here, offended, or falls away. All right? When tribulation comes, when persecution comes because of the word, well, then those people fall away. uh, Those who are offended, who fall away, John says this about them in 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Ultimately, what John is saying is that they weren't really one of us, meaning they weren't really believers. They weren't. Outwardly, they professed Christ, right? Outwardly, they identified with the church, but once it got hot, right? Then they fell away. And why do these people fall away at this time? I think three things you see here, and one is obvious here. The cost is just going to be too high. People are being persecuted. In fact, we find out that they're actually being beheaded. You go further to chapter uh, 20, that people are being beheaded there for their uh, faith. That is just going to be too high of a price to pay. But listen, Jesus promised that since the world hated him, that the world would hate his followers as well, didn't he? Jesus said that we needed to take... Deny ourself and take up our cross and follow him. What happens with these people? Well, their cross has come. They're just not willing to take it. They're not willing to carry it. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 to 33. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. We we cannot deny Him. If we deny Him, then we He will deny us. And that's what's going to take place here. Many will just deny Him. And Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews gives us this warning about that in Hebrews 3.12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. We got to beware that there's an evil heart of unbelief because what will that do? Cause you to depart from the living God. God, that's what happens at this point of time, right? And so great will their falling away be that they're going to betray one another. They're going to hate one another. Can you imagine just our church, our sweet fellowship? I mean, you look at this and go, oh, that can't ever happen. I can't imagine anyone in the church betraying one another, hating one another. It's not all that far-fetched. Our hearts are easily twisted and seduced. It, even this simple, this, this simple little thing we've been going through, this COVID-19, right? I, there, there's giant opposite ends of what people think about that. And to the point, to the point where there's negative thoughts about other beliefs, it's not, it's not too far-fetched. And that's just that. That's just this minuscule little thing. You think about that period of time where people are getting their heads chopped off. People are saying, yeah, I'm done with that. They will easily betray one another. Why? The cost is just too high. They will easily do it. Um, Mark and Luke give us a graphic picture of this betrayal. I'm going to show you Mark 13:12. He describes it this way. Now, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Picture that world. And when you read Luke's account, he actually says that relatives and friends will be part of that as well. So, so picture anyone you love right? Your own children, your own parents, your own relatives, your own friends, your own brother, they're happily betraying and hating one another. That is that period of time. That, that's what you would see happening widespread. Now, we don't see that happening widespread here. I think for the most part, the church is remaining pretty solid, solid and unified in all these things. But what I'm saying is, the reality will be is that people will be turning one another over to be put to death. And one of the reasons is the cost will be just too high. I think another reason for the defection is found in verse 11. Look at it. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. We talked about it last week, but remember, Satan is out and about. And he's at work and he masquerades as an angel of light. And during this period of time that Jesus is describing, he's uh, going to arise, there's going to arise an evil, false uh, religious system that we saw there uh, mentioned as the harlot. It's the false religious system. The Antichrist is going to ultimately take over and then impose worship of himself. The world is going to be deceived away from the true gospel and, and fall into that false religious system, which is global at that point. And I think one of the other deceiving characteristics that you find in the end times is that there's going to be prolific drug use. Because when you read Revelation 9, we don't have to look at it now, but it talks about that they wouldn't repent from their murders or their sexual immorality, but it also says their sorceries. And that word sorceries in the Greek is is pharmakeia. It just means a use of administering drugs. And so I think at this time, there's going to be likely mind-altering drugs, hallucinogens. that will be used in collusion with this false religious system. You have all the false uh, prophets and deceivers going about. So people are going to be deceived into betraying one another as well. And I think a third reason for their defection is seen in here in verses 12 to 13. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Uh, verse 12 says it's just lawlessness. It's, it's, they'll, they'll, because it abounds, people will so love the sin and not have practiced righteousness and truth that will have grown cold, that they'll just pr- pursue it. It's the perilous times that Paul wrote to Timothy a- a- about. Um, we, we don't have it for you, but if you remember just the, some of the um, words that are used in there, I read last week, the perilous times, men are going to be lovers of themselves lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, right? That's the sign of the perilous times coming forward. And because lawlessness abounds, they've lost their love for one another. Love has gone out the window. It's just lovers of self. It's self-preservation. It's sin. So you have all this happening. And then verse 13 says, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Wow. So you got to endure to the end of all that. How do you, how do, you do that? Well, let me just tell you, you don't do that. Christ does that in you. Remember, Paul talks about that, um, that he has begun a good work in you, will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So we don't, if we're secure in Christ, uh, then we're secure to the end. And I think people who are generally saved uh, do not, cannot depart from the faith. I think they will endure to the end. I think in the letter to the churches earlier on in Revelation 2, he said they will overcome. He who stays to the end will overcome. I think that same idea applies to believers even in this tribulation time. You'll endure to the end. Meaning you'll happily lose the head in favor of the Lord. And we see um, a description here. I just wanted to read this really quick to you and then we're going to close with one last point. Revelation chapter 7 we have a picture of these, these martyred saints here. Verses 14 to 17. And I said to him, sir, you know, who, who are these? These are the, great, the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They wash their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. We read that verse, but now look at the next verse. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. And they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Ultimately, God takes care of everything. Ultimately, their reward is huge. There is no more sorrow. They're not gonna be uh, scorched by the sun any longer. None of these things, they're not gonna hunger, not gonna thirst. All those things were happening upon everyone who dwells upon the earth in that time. You will go through that but ultimately he who endures to the end will be saved and the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. What a glorious promise. Well, there's one more sign and we'll just close going back to Matthew 24. One more birth pain. It's declaration. Declaration verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. The end comes with the worldwide declaration of the gospel, and that's going to take place right before the end. And I mentioned this last week. How is that going to happen? Because right now there are many, many, many places on the earth that the gospel has not reached. Um, and even today, even as you talk to people in areas that you would assume the gospel has reached, there's still an idea. People actually haven't heard this message, right? It's been so twisted and convoluted. Uh, I find that all the time. So how will this happen? How will the gospel be preached um, to all the world? Revelation 14. And we'll close with this passage. Revelation 14. Revelation 14, again, I told you, is sort of a flash forward to the end. It kind of reveals, and and the reason we know that is because of verse one. Then I looked and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. Jesus is back. He's standing on Mount Zion, but this is a flash forward, looking forward. And at that time, three angels are sent out. And look at this first angel, it's found in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. How will this worldwide declaration of the gospel take place before the end will come? It's going to happen supernaturally. God is going to do it. In this church age, God uses the church, God uses believers to preach the gospel, but in the end, in the tribulation, he's going to use an angel. An angel is going to go out right before the end and make sure that every single, and notice what he says, nation, tribe, tongue, and people has heard the call to fear God and give glory to him. In the end, God is going to give an opportunity for every single soul to repent. One final chance to do so. That just shows you in the midst of all this horrific judgment taking place. God is still merciful. God is still gracious. And so then he says, then the end will come at that point. So now we have had all these signs. These are the six birth pains that we've looked at. And so what, what will be the sign of those? Like, how do we know when those start, right? I had a conversation, just a short one this week with someone about that. Like, so if we're not in the birth pains, are we in the Braxton Hicks pains? I mean, you know, where, where are we? How do we know when these things will start? you'll get the answer next week. The answer is in verse 15. You'll have to wait till then and we'll dig into it then. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to hear from you, to hear from Jesus himself about the signs at the end of the age, Lord. And Lord, we what a what a terrible time as we look at this uh, world and the wars and the famines and the pestilences and the the uh Uh, persecution, uh, everything that will be taking place, Lord, this will not be an enjoyable place to be. And so, Lord, we just pray for your church, for your people, that you would sustain us, that you would keep us fixed and focused on the right thing. Lord, we're just waiting for you. We want to be faithful to you to the end, to endure to the end. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you, Lord, for the ultimate promise that uh, you will be in the midst of the throne and you will shepherd us. Oh, God, I just pray that you would continue to preserve your people. Lord, encourage them strengthen them. Lord, may we find hope even in the dark days we find ourselves in, looking to you, the great author and perfecter of our faith. God, we love you. We praise you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.